Good morning. Good morning. Everybody say good morning, Mr. Lacey, please. Excellent. Thank you very much. Good morning. Uh, it's great to see you. Um, for those of you that don't know me, my name's Aaron. Um, I am from uh, Gateway's other sites, currently based at Paul Key, uh, shortly to be Ashley Road. Um, but it's fantastic to be here with you this morning. Um, I always love coming up here. So, bearing in mind that it's Valentine's Day today, there are three words that I think I've probably heard more than any other three words throughout the last year. Would anyone care to guess what they are? Where's my chocolate? <laughs> Where's my chocolate? Close. <laughs> That's probably second, actually. Anyone else want to have a guess? Love, nearly. Thank you very much. I'm very fond of you as well. <laughs> Would you like to guess what the three words are? Or? <laughs> Now, I kind of led you into believing that it was going to be I love you, but sadly not, they aren't the words that, that, that I constantly hear all year round, because I am the parent of three young children. The three words that I hear, the three words that, that if I'm honest, haunt my very existence are, it's not fair. It's not fair. I wanted a strawberry yogurt. It's not fair. Oscar hit me with a golf club. <laughs> it's not fair. We've listened to the Justin Bieber album three times now, Dad. Can we have something else? <laughs> the usual stuff. But it's true, isn't it? Anyone who's ever spent any amount of time with children will tell you that they have a very strong sense as to their rights, or at least as to what they feel their rights should be. And of course, there's been a relatively recent shift in our culture that promotes this kind of behaviour amongst adults as well. In modern Britain, modern Europe, the rights of an individual being met are often in many ways seen as the, the kind of the ultimate goal of humanity. And more specifically in, in this culture, the right to personal freedom is the kind of, the, the, the kind of nirvana for many people. Freedom to do whatever you want to do. Freedom to do whatever maybe feels right at the time. Which on the surface seems very forward thinking, seems very progressive, seems like a good idea. But actually, the moment you start to scratch that surface and look at the impact that this has on society as a whole, all of a sudden, it doesn't seem so clever. Because, and this is just one example of many, but in our culture, a married couple's right to get a divorce on the, the, the basis that they're no longer in love in a valentines -y kind of way now takes primacy over their responsibility to community, both their, their local community of their family, their children, but also the society as a whole. Because the world that, that we, we live in, the world we've created, says it's not fair to make them stick to the commitments that they've made to each other, to make them stick to the commitments they made to everybody present when they got married, to make them stick to the commitments that they made before God. And it's this cry of it's not fair that has caused us problems from the very beginning. As Adam and Eve looked at God and they saw that he had knowledge and therefore power that they didn't have, 
the, the injustice to their distorted vision led them into crying, it's not fair. It led them into sin, into disobedience against him. Just as it does when we look at someone, when I look at Alan and I envy him for, for his, his looks and golfing ability, <laughs> it can lead us into sin. Or when we feel sorry for ourselves, when we, we look at our lives and we go, it's, it's not how I wanted it to turn out. Or even when somebody does wrong to us and we have a right to feel aggrieved, even this, in fact, I say particularly this, can lead us into sin. So we're working our way through the Philippian series at the moment. So what I want to do is have a look at how that speaks into the it's not fair culture that we live in. So if you could turn with me to Philippians 2, verse 5. I think it's page 691 on the Bibles on your chairs. So Philippians 2, 5, page 691. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, it's not even lunchtime yet, but I would hazard a guess that many of us in this room, already this morning, have in some way sinned. And in the last week, I'd say that probably each and every one of us has in some way or another. And not only this, in the last week, probably most of us have, have felt a little bit aggrieved about something that somebody's done to them. So it may be the the idiot in the BMW who cut you up as you were driving from one site to the other. Or perhaps it was a woman who didn't pick up after her dog. Or maybe somebody at work got a promotion ahead of you. I don't know. We've all probably got things that have annoyed us this week. But Jesus, who never sinned, died on a cross for the sins of the world. So if anybody has got the right to say it's not fair, then it's definitely him. Let's look again. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now those of us here who are, are Christians would probably all agree that um, Christ, Jesus, is the example for how we're supposed to live. It's kind of in the name, isn't it? Christian. We're supposed to be like Christ. But it's all too easy for us to stop there and say Jesus is our example to say that's how we're supposed to live. But as I've, I've already pointed out this morning, there's probably not one of us in this room who over the last week 
hasn't sinned. And we can kind of then fall into a way of thinking that says, yes, he's our example. He's how we're supposed to live, but it's not realistic. We can only kind of get to there. To accept maybe silently that it's not possible to live the way that Jesus lived. Now, I can't stress enough how dangerous a way of thinking this is. Because, and I've said this before many times at the key, I think they're sick of me saying it, I may have said it here before as well, but what you think, what you believe, affects how you act, and how you act affects what you believe. It can either lead to a vicious or a virtuous circle. And the first verse that Paul uses tells us that, that, that we can have the same mindset as Christ. In doing so, we can live as he lives. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Those of us here this morning that know Jesus, it's really clear, can have his mindset. Why? Because he dwells within us and we within him. And if we can take his mindset, then we can think the way that he thinks. We can believe the way that he believes. We can act the way that he acts. We can live the way that he lives, which for Christians is a total game changer because we also see that Jesus finds joy, not with this kind of self-serving, it's not fair mentality, but Jesus finds joy through an unparalleled life of humility, of serving others, which means we can do the same. It means that we too can find joy in humility. But I don't know about you, but, but to me, this sounds in many ways like a bit of a contradiction. Because humility, being humble, is of course something I want other people to think about me. I want you to look at me and go, well, Aaron, he's a, he's a humble guy. But I guess that in itself probably demonstrates that, that being genuinely humble is not something that I'm naturally keen on. And of course, I'm joking, but the reality is Many of our acts of humility, our displays of humility, are born primarily out of pride, out of others wanting to think highly of us. And the def dictionary definition of humility is having a low view of one's importance. And, and last week, Matthew touched on this. And, and this doesn't mean, this isn't about having a low sense of self-esteem. This isn't about kind of uh, having some sort of inferiority complex. But this is about choosing to put others' needs ahead of your own, genuinely putting others first, not by random acts of kindness, but actually through your total way of being, both through how you think and how you act, which of course, as I've said, it sounds very noble, but it doesn't sound particularly fun, does it? It doesn't sound like the sort of thing that we would necessarily get joy from. And I'd say this is particularly so when you are privileged in some way, as probably most of us in this room are. So through being citizens of, of the United Kingdom, we have the privilege that means very few people go without housing. Very few people go without food. We all have access to a, 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 an incredible healthcare service. If I lose my job tomorrow, I'm extremely privileged, I'm extremely grateful that my children will still be provided for in this way. But the problem is, 
because we have this privilege, the way that we work, because I have this as a privilege, very quickly I've become to see this as my right. We see it as Citizens UK as, as the least that we're owned. And because of this, if, if I don't receive what, what I feel is rightfully mine, my response is, is maybe one of anger. You know, if I, if I don't get access to a doctor, if in, in the circumstance that I didn't get housing, my response wouldn't be to, to humble myself before the authorities. I'd probably be on the phone moaning and complaining, saying, why have I not received this? Yet, to contrast this, when we think of maybe refugees who have come into this country, because they don't have the privilege of being born here, then often genuine humility is the course of action that you see. Because their experience tells them that actually, yes, they are less important than the people of this country. And yes, they are import less important than, than our authorities. So they naturally take on a position of humility. Whereas we, most of us in this room, see these things as our rights, as our privilege, because of a position of privilege. Yet compare our relative position of privilege to that of Jesus. He is God. He doesn't have the right just to say it's not fair. Jesus has got the right to do anything he wants. It's quite an unexpected choice, isn't it, that he wanted, he chose to humble himself, to be born as a man, to die for all men. Alan, if you were unconstrained by the laws of nature and you could do anything you wanted to do, what would you do? Keep it clean, please. Fly, exactly. I think that's pretty much what everybody says. That's what the same answer I got down at the queue this morning. You'd fly. You'd do, you'd do something like that, wouldn't you? You'd do something kind of out there and fun and personally satisfying. But here we have Jesus, who, as 1 Colossians 15 tells us, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In Jesus' very essence, he is the manifestation of everything that God is. He is entirely, completely God. Before Jesus' incarnation onto this earth, he was, for all eternity, the visible expression of the Father. It doesn't get more important, it doesn't get more privileged than this. Yet, unlike us, on this earth, Jesus chose not to exercise his privileges, which again, this should set the model for us as Christians. When we lead our families, when we lead in the workplace, when we lead in, in church, it should be done in humility. Not exercising the supposed privileges of leadership and, and, and counting those under your authority as, as kind of minions, but rather seeing your leadership as service 
to those you're leading in such a way that you put their needs ahead of your own. And, and of course, this doesn't mean that in, in the home we let our children rule the roost, or this doesn't necessarily mean in the workplace, if, if, if you have people who, who work for you or in the church, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean you, you lead by democracy, because that would, of course, be to abdicate your God-given responsibilities. But rather, it means that we are to lead in a way that is not selfish for gain. But we're to make decisions that are in accordance with God's will and that are for the good of those that we're serving, even though, particularly with children, those decisions may sometimes be unpopular. And Jesus, of course, went far further than just not exercising his privileges of God, because he could have done that, he could have not exercised his privileges of God, but still come down to the earth as a king who was still revered, revered and bound down to, and not, you know, as a servant, but, but still come down in a, in a position of authority. But that in itself, as a sacrifice, would have been greater than any sacrifice that we could offer. But he went further than this. The passage says, it uses this phrase, that he emptied himself. So what does this mean? How did Jesus empty himself? Well, we read he did it by taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And both of these things, what they do, is they flip the natural order of things. Because Jesus is God, as I've said. He has dominion over all things. All things come under his authority, but he relinquished this to become the very opposite, to become a servant. He went from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. And of course, man was made in God's image, which is what brings value to all of us in this room this morning. But here it tells us that Jesus was then made in the image of man, which is Jesus again placing himself in the ultimate position of humility. And in calling Jesus a servant, Paul was no doubt thinking of the, the, the suffering servant that we read of in, in Isaiah 52, which foretells God's servant, Jesus. It foretells what he would do. So if you could turn with me to Isaiah 52, verse 13. Uh, it's page, page 427. Isaiah 52, verse 13. Now, here we're going to read of the suffering servant, and it's quite a long passage, but I'd ask you just to, to dig in, because it's, it's incredible. It's, it's actually quite haunting stuff, but what it does, it highlights the reality of Jesus' servanthood. Like I said, it's a long passage, but let's absorb it and what it's saying. So, Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely, he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many, of, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, 
a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. transgressors. Now in this incredible um, Old Testament account of the gospel, we see that when Paul refers to Jesus as a servant, he's not kind of thinking of a, a palatable Downton Abbey type servant. He, 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 Jesus gave up everything. He was crushed, it says, in service to God. He was crushed in service to us. And in doing so, he completed what Israel was meant to do as a servant of Yahweh. He, he, he completes what they, they failed to do. Jesus emptied himself by becoming a servant. And he also emptied himself by being born in the likeness of men. And those of us, again, who are Christians here, it's very easy to skate over that fact, to, to not give it much thought. Jesus came to earth. He was born. He, he, he grew up. He became a man. We should actually stop and go, what, God became a man? Yes, he did, he, Jesus didn't come in the form of a man. Jesus didn't come kind of in man's clothing, or he didn't come pretending to be a man for a few hours. He was born, and he fully experienced humanity in all its entirety. He knew what it was to experience human joy and human suffering, human pain, human laughter. He experienced the full range of what it is to be human. Just like you or me, he became man. And when he died, and when he was raised again, he was raised as a man. For eternity, Jesus has emptied himself by taking on humanity. But that doesn't mean that Jesus ceases to be God. His emptying is an emptying by addition. 
Augustine put it like this. He said, Christ emptied himself, not by losing what he was, but by taking to him what he was not. Because Jesus didn't set deity aside in order to become a man. Rather, he added full humanity to his full deity. Which, of course, is a very difficult concept to get your head around. It's not a simple thing to try and understand. But for those of us here this morning who are Christians, this is an incredible truth, and it is one that we must grasp as best as we can. Why? Because it means that we only need one saviour. Because Jesus is God, he is all-powerful, and he can't be defeated. Because Jesus is God, he is the only adequate saviour. Because Jesus is God, believers are safe. Believers can never perish. We have eternal security. Because Jesus is God, we can have confidence that he will empower us for whatever task he commands us to do. Because Jesus is God, all people will be accountable to him one day when he returns to judge the world. But at the same time, because Jesus is man, he's experienced everything that we do. Because Jesus is man, he can intimately identify with us, with our struggles. Because Jesus is man, he can come to our aid as our sympathetic high priest and he can intercede for us. Because Jesus is man, he can relate to us. He's not far off and uninvolved. Because Jesus is man, we can't complain that God doesn't know what it's like, that God doesn't know what I'm going through. He has experienced it firsthand. Jesus is one person who is truly 100% God. To see him as any less than this is actually not to know him. But at the same time, he has taken this incredible action to also become truly 100% human in order to serve us and ultimately in order to save us. For Christians, this is the definition of humility. And as if humbling yourself in this way, by becoming man, by becoming a servant, was not enough, he then went a step further. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, dying on a cross would have been considered the most shameful death possible. It tells us in Galatians 3, Verse 13, Paul writes this, he writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Jesus became a curse for us. In, in, in polite Roman company, they wouldn't have even spoken of the cross. It was, it was too, too shaming, too, too humiliating a thing even to talk about it. Yet this is what Jesus has done for us. On Valentine's Day, if you want to know what love is, Jesus is showing us here. It's about giving ourselves up for others, ultimately in service of the one who gave himself up for us. Again, for those of us here that are Christians, this is a question that is worth asking ourselves. Is this what Valentine's Day, is this what love looks like to us? Because as I've said, Jesus is our, he's our paradigm. He is, he's our example. We shouldn't be crying like the rest of the world. It's not fair. And seeking to raise our own status or seeking to raise our own comfort levels. 
but rather we need to start loving the way that Jesus loved. We need to continue loving the way that Jesus loved in a way that disregards ourselves. Okay, back to the passage, verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now verses 6 to 8 focus very much on what Jesus did. And then we get the shift, verses um, 9 to 11, with the focus being on the results of what he has done. Now the name Jesus quite literally means Yahweh saves, which it tells us here is the name above all names, which in its culture that, that it was written to would have had uh, significance because it, for the Roman world, for much of the Roman world, this would have been, of course, offensive because as, as far as they were concerned, the greatest name was, was the emperor, Caesar. This isn't just a challenge to this. This is an outright statement that Jesus is greater, that Jesus is the greatest name, greater than the Caesars of our day of Obama and Bill Gates and, and Putin, greater even than our own personal Caesars of health, wealth and happiness. Paul's statement here is that only Yahweh can truly save. All of his so-called rivals, if, if you could even call them that, offer little more than temporary comfort. Even the greatest of emperors are under authority. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And in making this statement, what Paul's doing, again, he's clearly harking back to Isaiah. He's harking back to Isaiah 45. He even quotes it. He says this, Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a saviour. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, a righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. The clear statement that Isaiah is making here is that it is Yahweh and it is to Yahweh alone that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That Yahweh alone shall be the saviour that all nations are so desperately seeking. And Paul in Philippians, what he's doing, he's highlighting that what has been told of Yahweh is completed in Christ. Jesus and Yahweh are one. And on that day, all in heaven and on earth and under the earth, in other words, the whole universe will be in full submission to God, be in full submission to Jesus. Not one will be able to stand up to him. We will see him in his majesty and our only possible response, the only thing we'll be able to do is to worship him. And when you see Jesus in this light, it becomes easier to grasp 
our humility, when you consider that he is so far above all things, when you consider that you can choose now to humble yourself before him, or on that day be humiliated by him for eternity, all of a sudden the choice becomes stark. We have a choice. Everything, everything that we have is owed to Jesus. The eternal name above all names. The one that not only controls our destiny, but at the same time, who gave everything up in order that we may know the fruit of his righteousness. We can choose to follow him in his humility, or we can choose the immortal pleasures offered by Caesar. So I'm just going to finish with one question. Which do you think will bring more joy? Let's pray. Yeah, Lord God, we just come before you now and we, we thank you, Jesus, for, for what you have done for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have achieved for us everything that we need, Lord. We bring nothing, quite literally nothing to the table except our sin. And you bestow upon us righteousness. You remove our sin as far as the east is from the west from us, Lord. And you make us righteous. You have given us all things. Lord, I pray that you would help us to reflect this in our lives, Lord. To live lives of humanity. To see others in this room with the eyes that you have for them, Lord. To serve our brothers and sisters. And to go out into the world and see them as people who need you, Lord. To put ourselves under your authority, Lord, and to see them as more important, to do whatever we need to do, Lord, to show them you. In Jesus' name.